Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast with interviews conducted by KPFA theater critic Richard Walensky and associate theater critic C.S. Sung and reviews that aired on KPFA's Arts Waves and Upfront programs. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. The first interview in the series is with Ricardo Perez Gonzalez. This interview was recorded on March 3, 2020, the day before his play, Don't Eat the Mangoes, had its world premiere to sparkling reviews at the Magic Theater in San Francisco's Fort Mason Center. Within a week, the play closed down due to social distancing rules put in place because of the novel coronavirus epidemic. Don't Eat the Mangoes hopefully will be performed again on Bay Area stages. My guest is Ricardo Perez Gonzalez, who is a playwright. His play, Don't Eat the Mangoes, is having its world premiere through March 22nd at the Magic Theater in San Francisco. Ricardo Perez Gonzalez is the author of several plays, including In the Fields Where They Lay, The Tender Peel, On the Grounds of Belonging, which we will be talking about, and has spent the last year working for Netflix on the show uh, Designated Survivor. But first, let's start with Don't Eat the Mangoes. When the play opens, when the lights come up, what do we see? You see El Comandante. You actually see my abuela's home in El Comandante. They based the set design on my grandmother's home. And the first thing you see are these three women convening. Ismelda, the older sister, Huicha, the younger sister, and Ginoa, the middle sister, who's pretty much me. And you see them gathering together to try to figure out whose turn is it to take care of the old man. Where does mother fit in? So mother is, mommy is dealing with cervical cancer for the second time. She is at chemo at the opening of the play. And she's been going to chemo because her tío Eric has been taking her so that the girls can focus on dealing with papi. And what's interesting about Mommy's role in the play is despite the fact that she's going through her own health issues, she is still expected to take care of Papi because that is her social position. That is the good, dutiful wife. In some of the promotional material, it talks about secrets will be exposed. This is pretty common in theater to have secrets exposed. Mm -hmm. When you're investigating a play like Don't Eat the Mangoes at the beginning and you're figuring out who the characters are. I mean, that may not be the way you start. Maybe you start with a sentence. But at what point do you kind of go, okay, there are things which have to be revealed later? That's a really great question. It depends on the play. This play, I knew what it was because of the story. And I knew who the characters were because of the story that's been passed down in my family. Most of the time, though, honestly, I'm terrible at plot. 
I love characters. I love their interactions. But when it comes to those secrets and revelations, I have to think really hard about what is it that is born of these characters that drives the secrets and drives the actual plot of the play. I have fellow writers who the second you tell them, oh, I was ahead of the play, they just, they want to go jump off a cliff because they haven't done their job. And I'm not so crazy about having secrets and making sure they're revealed perfectly. A, it's not necessarily my skill set. And B, I can't remember who it was said. It might have been Campbell who said there are, what, 23 stories that we just keep telling again and again and again. The point for me isn't, ooh, what can I hide from the audience? How can I manipulate them? The point for me is, are they enjoying going on the ride? Even if they figure out maybe what comes next, are they still engaged? Do they still care about these characters? Are they still going on this journey with me? And that, to me, when I think of what secret should I embed is the more important question. So you're not as worried if somebody figures it out? No, not really. We had a really great talk back and there's a bunch of secrets in the play. I don't want to be too specific, but I asked about one in particular. Everybody had a different answer about when they knew. And for some, it was, well, I had a suspicion, but then it was confirmed or, or I thought it was this, but then it turned out to be this. And a couple of people were like, no, I had no clue until it was revealed. And for me, that's actually more interesting than trying to write Inception where, ooh, it was a dream all the time. What, you know? Right. What brought you to the family story and what brought you to adding the hurricane? The family story is, uh, it's quite personal, actually. I would be lying if I said it wasn't about my family. I would also kind of be lying if I said it was about my family. But the story itself is really about a legacy of trauma and a legacy of violence being passed down through generations. And the events of the play actually happened to my Bisa boiler, like my great-great-grandmother. And the violence that was enacted upon her was then passed down to my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother and then finally to me. That's where the inspiration came from. It's uh, a story that I've known my entire life. It's been part of the landscape of my nightmares. And so uh, it just made sense to kind of exercise it through uh, the medium of theater. And I wrote the first scene of this play maybe 10 years ago in kind of a fever rage, if you will. It just kind of came out. And it was 10 pages, you know, and then I put it in a drawer or in a file in my computer because nobody writes by hand anymore. And I didn't look at it for six years. And I had the opportunity through the Soul Project and Jacob Pedron to do a reading of it with David Menizabal, my director. And it was just before Hurricane Maria hit. So I was working on, on the play through the reading and, and kind of made it, you know, made it more than 10 pages, made it a full 90 minute play. And once uh, Maria hit, there was no way that I, I couldn't include that element. The play is not about Hurricane Maria. The play is about, uh, it's actually since the time that you probably read the summary, it's now no longer a hurricane, it's a tropical storm. Uh, because the play is about so much that 
making it about Maria would kind of subsume everything else. But the reality of tropical storms, the reality of power outages, the reality of climate on the island and what it does to folks is still a major part of the play. I was looking at hurricanes in Puerto Rico and they came occasionally, but we've had three big ones, Mm -hmm. uh, Maria, Irma, and Dorian, just in the past three years. So climate change is kind of doing its number on Puerto Rico. Have you been down there? Yes. I used to, as a kid, I was born in a trailer park in Ames, Iowa. I lived in Nebraska, Virginia, California, New York for you know almost 20 years. But I would, as a kid, we would go back during the summers and see my abuelas. And since then, once I became an adult, I still go frequently to visit my cousin and my tío. And I, the last time I was there was last year. And the state of the island, I was actually, interestingly enough, I was supposed to fly out the day Hurricane Maria hit to go to Puerto Rico to do research for this play, actually, to continue writing this play. But last year, I the last time I went, it's just, you know, you, you drive through the parts of the south still and the road just kind of disappears in front of you and because it's been washed away. The island is so hard hit economically. My, my tío was out of work for two years and he's... He's actually an actor, and he used to work at a radio station doing uh, theatrical programming, and the radio station was destroyed. And he used to have work as a grocery bagger, and he couldn't go back to that because there was too much competition for work such as that. So there are all of these devastating, ongoing impacts of Maria and of the financial coup, the junta, that has been implemented by the U.S. through PROMESA, all of these are reverberating through the economy and unemployment is massive on the island. Getting caught up in talking about American politics (laughs) kind of takes us in a different direction. But of course, it's a subtext pretty much of a lot of work that's been going on in theater and film over the past three years, for sure. As a playwright, writing several plays at once, because you never know which ones are going to go in what direction, how do you balance commentary about what's going on now with creating plays that will survive past the orange monster? It's a really great question. In most of my plays, I don't aim to comment on anything, really. I try my best to write about real characters living in the real world, dealing with real issues. In the case of Puerto Rico, you can't not... The the political context of Puerto Rico being a colony of the U.S. is just part of people's lives. So in some ways, the play itself is an allegory for the paternalistic, abusive colonial relationship Puerto Rico has with the U.S., that's really not on the face of it. It's not, you know, a a baked-in commentary. It's just the way it is. And I think that the rest of my work is obviously in conversation with our present moment because I don't think you can make art that's not in conversation with the present moment because it's just how people live. So that, for me, is, is how I balance it. I make it about what's going on. And part of what's going on is possibly the death of our democracy. (laughs) Part of what's going on are the massive waves of climate change we're seeing. Part of what's going on are growing 
disparity between the rich and the poor. So those are all the circumstances of people's lives, our audience members and the characters of my plays. I love agitprop. I love other people doing agitprop. I'm just, I don't think I'm good at it because I'm so angry. And it's just, whenever I try it, people are like, oh, well, I, that was just, no. Ricardo Perez Gonzalez, how does a play open? In a literal sense, a play opens once the audience makes their first connection with all of the elements that are put in the play. So that means the design elements, the the lighting, the sounds, the uh, characters. And for me, that is actually the creation of the play. A play doesn't really exist until it is received by an audience member. I firmly believe that. And I can write all I want, a director can direct all they want, actors can play for each other all they want, but until an audience member experiences it with their senses, the play doesn't exist. Also, for me, a play opens with that first idea. So thinking of a different opening, opening of of the subject matter, opening of my inspiration is what actually first popped into my head when you asked that. Uh, the kind of flowering of a character or a scenario or a situation or a scene that wells up inside me and I realize, oh, this is a story that needs to be told. You've spent the last, I guess, year or two years, whatever it was, working on the Netflix show Designated Survivor. How does techniques that you might have picked up in the writer's room influence you in the rewrites of a play like Don't Eat the Mangoes? I feel like TV and playwriting are just kissing cousins. They're very related because you're just writing a lot of dialogue really based in character. Master playwrights used to say, well, TV, characters don't change. It's, it's you know, it's so static. And that's just not true, especially well, nowadays. Days, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you have these long arcs. Characters change at the speed they change in life because you just have more time with them. So those two things have really stood me in good stead for both forms. But one of the things that has really come to bear on my playwriting is TV, you don't get long monologues, you know? You get dialogue that snaps and moves and kind of crackles. And I've always been something of a rhythmic playwright, but I've also been somewhat of an overly lyrical playwright. I love me some purple prose, like Lorca and Tennessee Williams are big influences for me. But in TV, you really can't indulge because you don't, get to add time you know and it's really helped me in my playwriting to really think about what is essential to tell this story what does this character actually need to say in this moment what keeps the story moving forward and really streamlining my dialogue and making it sparkle in a way that it doesn't always or didn't always before I started writing for television does this mean that down the road screenplays will become easier I think so. Screenplays, I actually, I've written a couple of screenplays and I'm, I've had one produced that I co-wrote with a wonderful writer and director, Laura Moss. That's The Rest of Us. Yeah, The Rest of Us, absolutely. It's interesting because film is such a cinematic medium that dialogue is, is a piece of it, but it's it's so much about what visuals can you use to tell the story. And that's actually interestingly come to bear in my playwriting in some ways. I, there are a couple of completely nonverbal scenes in Don't Eat the Mangoes, and I've been really much more interested in 
just watching human behavior on stage in, in the way you might in a movie and how can I as a playwright script that so that a director and an actor can consistently replicate it, right? In a movie, all you have to do is do it once and then you write something and the director changes it anyhow, right? And <laughs> uh, theater, it's very different. How long have you been working with David? Years. So we actually went to college together, to university, undergrad, NYU Tisch. And I remember I would see him in the hallways and in the elevator. I would like say hello. And he was always just a little too cool for school. Or so I thought. He's actually just kind of shy. So we never really connected at university. But then I was an actor and he was a costume designer. And we wound up working on the same show, Man of La Mancha. I was the the priest in Man of La Mancha and he was designing the costumes. And so we got to know each other then. I remember our fitting. He was fitting a, a jail suit on me, a, a, an inmate's costume, right? And we started talking and I mentioned that I had also started writing plays. And he runs a theater company called the Movement Theater Company in New York City, an amazing company that really focuses on artists of color and uplifting artists and writers of, of color. So he invited me to do a little festival with them. This was in 2010, I want to say. A little garden festival. I wrote a short little 10-minute play. And ever since then, we've just kept working together. I went back to NYU, Tisch, for a master's degree in dramatic writing. And I had him direct my thesis play. And then he directed my play On the Grounds of Belonging at the Public when it went up at the public theater as part of public studio. And then he directed it again at Long Wharf. And he helped me develop this from the ground up from those 10 pages, along with The Soul Project and Jacob Padron, and then here at The Virgin with Loretta. He's just been a constant in the development of a lot of my plays. He's an amazing director, an amazing dramaturgical director, and an amazing design eye. I notice a lot of playwrights and directors, they all start out as actors. <laughs> so through your travels through all of these different cities as you were growing up, when did the acting bug hit? Oh, that is all thanks to Jeff Ray, Ray Ray, I used to call him, uh, my kind of drama teacher in high school, uh, rest in peace. He really taught me what theater could be in terms of exploration of, of politics, for one, exploration of kind of the human condition. My father was a singer and, and was also an artist in some ways who became an engineer. And so ever since I was a young kid, he always encouraged me to pursue the arts. So I would do like little school plays and I always kind of had that bug in me. But it really solidified in high school with Jeff Ray kind of and the drama club, really just showing me what theater can be, how it can be a family, how it can really change people's lives, how it can save people's lives sometimes. How did playwriting come into that? Because eventually, of course, you became a playwright. Absolutely. Ever since I was a little kid, I've loved writing. And I remember somebody telling me, that you should keep your first passion as a hobby and make your second passion a career so that you always have something that you love and enjoy that you're not worried about getting money from. So, you know, again, since I was a little kid, I would write stories about Greek mythology. And there was, I don't know if you remember the 
Odyssey and the Cyclops Polyphemus. Uh, Odysseus snuck onto his island, stole his sheep, blinded yeah. him. He was Odysseus was a jerk, you know. And I remember hearing that story as a kid and thinking, "Poor Cyclops," you know. And so I wrote a story from the Cyclops' point of view about trying to find home after being blinded and trying to go back to the land of the Cyclops. You know, I've always been interested in stories of people on the outside, people who are trying to make their way home as well. So. I had a career as an actor for a little bit, and I was doing a work of devised theater about September 11th. Everybody in the cast was in New York on that day. And so we did a a piece that we all co-created about other cities throughout history and across the world that had burned. So we didn't do it directly about September 11th, but we used these other historical instances to connect to our own experience. and. It went up at the New York Fringe, and it was a really lovely experience. It wasn't everything I wanted it to be. So the director approached me shortly thereafter, after we closed the show, because he wanted to do another devised piece about the World War I Christmas truce, where the British and Germans just stopped shooting at each other and sang Christmas carols across no man's land. And I remember sitting in his living room, Brad Raimondo, he looked at me and said, you know, do you, you want to do this? You're a really great actor and, and participant collaborate in this. I want to do another devised piece. Will you do this? And I looked at him and I said, no, let me write it. I had never written a play before. I didn't know what possessed me in that moment, but I just, something made me ask. And I remember the look on his face. He just stopped for two seconds, kind of tilted his head and said, okay. And that was the first yes I ever got as a playwright. And it changed my life. Brad Raimondo in that moment uh, I then wrote In Fields Where They Lay, based on the World War and Christmas truce. It got a fairly good New York Times review, which is, you know, for a first play, what more could you ask? Uh, a fellow writer friend, once I got the review and was kind of wondering, is it good? Is it bad? What does it mean? She just looked at me and said, Ricardo, there are writers who wait their entire lives for a New York Times review. You got it. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> and it is. It's a, it's a good review. So, yeah, that, that, that set down my trajectory. Two areas that a lot of your work covers. One, of course, is your heritage as Puerto Rican. The other is gender, being a a gay man. And that brings us to probably what you consider your magnum opus that you're still working on, on the grounds of belonging, is the first play in a trilogy. Uh, And it's about uh, an interracial couple in Houston, starting in the 50s, and the three plays, I guess, take place over a period of several decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, what brought you to that, and are you familiar with the bars of Houston? <laughs> that story actually begin like, begins like all good stories begin with a boy. Uh, I was dating somebody in Los Angeles when I was um, there many years back, just kind of testing it out to see if I wanted to live there. And this gentleman, uh, Mooney Starr, he was a singer, uh, had elders, gay elders, queer elders, that, you know, like we all have. I think every gay man of a certain generation has um, older gay men who kind of mentored them and they have a relationship with that, were, that, were, that they kind of took care of them and showed them what queer life could be like. So he had a couple of friends like that who actually went to these 
racially segregated gay bars. There were a pair of older African-American gentlemen who would go to the Gold Room, which was the Blacks Only Bar, and or rather the 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 African American space because white people could always go into quote unquote blacks only bars, uh, but that the of course black people couldn't could not go into whites only bars. So I remember I was dating him and he mentioned this story and I was like, oh, and it was interesting because I wasn't overly surprised that there were racially segregated gay bars. I was a little surprised that there were gay bars in Houston, you know, uh, and then in the 1950s, because everybody thinks queer history started at Stonewall. I, I was also really struck by, once I heard, you know, racially segregated gay bars in 1950s Houston, Texas, I was thinking about New York and LA in some ways, and I was thinking, oh, racially segregated gay bars in the 50s. Well, I guess there were racially segregated gay bars, but that makes sense because there still are. Uh, you go to a lot of spaces and it's like it's a whites only bar. Uh, and then the drag queen makes a joke about the one black person there. And it's like, wow, that's a welcoming environment. Right. And then in New York, there used to be no parking, which was a Latine bar and uh, um, secret and the web, which catered to very specific demographics. And you only need to go on Grindr to see whites only signs pretty much. And when you see things like no fats, no femmes, no Asians or no blacks. That still exists in this day and age. So that's that's really what compelled me to explore it and to write it and why I felt it needed to be across the decades. It's a, an amazing moment in time, but it also resonates to this very day. The designated survivor, I guess that's the day job. How'd you get involved with Netflix? I took a meeting. It was an amazing opportunity. I was in New York on a theater retreat doing like yoga. I had my like soccer shorts and my tank tops and, and flip flops in, in upstate New York in the woods doing theater games. And my agent called, actually my manager called and said, hey, there's a showrunner who wants to meet you this Friday in LA. It was Wednesday. It was Wednesday night. He's calling me. I was just, I don't know if I can make it. The, the trip's going to be expensive. I'm on this theater retreat. I'd have to leave early. And I call my partner and my partner's like, baby, go. And I ended the conversation with him saying, ah, I'm probably not going to go. But that stuck with me that he was so like, you really have to do this. This is what you want to do. And so that night I booked a plane ticket. I flew out Thursday afternoon, got in Friday morning at like one. I was still in my soccer shorts and my flip-flops, so I actually had to borrow clothing from a friend of mine in L.A. I still love those shoes. I, I wish I could steal them from him. But I took this meeting with Neil Bayer, this amazing showrunner, amazing writer. He used to write on ER and was showrunner of Law & Order SVU uh, and Under the Dome. We just kind of clicked. Like I was able to look at because I, I watched the entire series in that like 12 hours on the plane and and getting there and then waiting for the meeting to start and we just had very similar sensibilities of, about where we wanted the third and final season to go and he kind of took a chance on me he's a fellow queer writer and we're now still working together designated as, the room is closed so the room is wrapped up uh, but we're pitching some podcasts, we're devising other shows, and he's been a wonderful resource. As I work on a, a pilot, the pilot's about a family trying to put their lives together after Hurricane Maria So in Orlando. The pilot's called Orlando. So Neil's also been a wonderful kind of help as I create my own work. 
So it's possible you could wind up being a showrunner or a co-showrunner for a story that in some ways takes off from, not specifically, but takes off from Don't Eat the Mango. Absolutely. And here's a little trick. If anybody in the future ever actually got to read my body of work, I borrow characters. So Ismelda, who is in Don't Eat the Mangoes, actually appears in Orlando in a small way. And Russell Montgomery, who is in On the Grounds of Belonging, is also in the pilot as like a, a, a random patient. I don't go on to necessarily develop those characters, but I feel between each play and each piece of TV and each movie, there are these little threads that link that they're all in the same world for me. And Orlando was the name of the show, If It Shows Up. Yes. If it shows up, that's always the question. But I'm working with, you know, Nina Tasler at Patma, who's an amazing, amazing creative. And I, I believe that we will move it someplace. We sold it one place and, and now we're trying to figure out if there's a life for it elsewhere. Getting back to Don't Eat the Mangoes, as a world premiere, I noticed there's a very long preview time, almost as long as the actual run of the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you said before that one of the changes is changing it from a hurricane to a tropical storm. How do those changes come about? In many, many different ways. The one that I'm most grateful for is it's my collaboration with my director, David. He's such a smart dramaturg. He's such so smart about structure and characters and what's needed that a lot of it comes about from our conversations. And it also comes about from, from conversations with the actors. So they have really smart insight into what their characters need or what it feels superfluous to their characters. There was one really interesting change. In the beginning, I wanted the character of Papi to just be offstage and uh, ringing a bell. Because he's essentially paralyzed, but he can, you know, has enough mobility to ring a bell. And he still rules the household through the ringing of that tiny bell. And in our first process with the Soul Project, all of my actors and David were like, I really think we need to hear from Papi. And I was so resistant. I really wanted it to be like Lorca and La Casa de Bernardo Alba, the house of Bernardo Alba, where it's six women and the man never appears on stage, but he's influencing everything in that play. And the patriarchy... Uh, recreates itself through these women. So I wanted to make that exploration, but through my very wonderful actors, Sol Crespo, Vanessa Aspillaga, Annie Hank, they, and, and Tony Plana, actually. Tony Plana was poppy in that reading. They convinced me that his presence was necessary, and it changed the entire play, and I, it's much better for it. It also means that you have to, instead of having this villainous character, the moment he comes on stage... He has to be a person. Exactly. You have to humanize all of your characters. It's very difficult sometimes when I myself have certain feelings about a character or, or, or what's happened. Uh, but it's necessary. Otherwise, it's not dramatic. And it's also so much more complicated because so many of us love people who hurt us. And also, loving someone in some ways is about hurting them. I don't think it's possible to love somebody or to be in love with somebody or to have that kind of relationship without there being an aspect of, of hurt to it. Not intentionally, of course. Please don't, don't stay with your abusers, folks. I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm not advocating that. I'm just talking about how close we get to those we love and how enmeshed we get and the possibility of harm. Uh, is there any gender issues in the play? 
yes and no. It's it's very much a play about uh, these three sisters, these three women dealing with their social position around womanhood as well, because it's kind of defined um, against their poppy or by in relief to their poppy. Uh, there is some queerness in the play, little bits and pieces. There's some secrets I have with the play that I wonder how others will interpret them, so I won't divulge in terms of queerness. And also, my I feel like my aesthetic is just a queer aesthetic. You know, there's always uh, things that are interrogating gender or or really trying to demolish a binary around it. So that's present in the play in a lot of different ways. That kind of brings up a, another question, which is sort of similar to the one I asked before about how you bring in what's happening in politics. And that's the difference between having characters do what characters are going to do. And that's often coming from your unconscious. At the same time, trying to keep your own political perspective out of it and mm -hmm. not overwhelm it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the best ways I found to kind of navigate that for me is to just have characters with differing points of view and differing attitudes about everything from politics to what we're going to have for dinner, you know. And for me, that really, A, it captures the moment we're in and in the U.S., all of these very different opinions that feel like they can't exist together, but do. And also it allows the audience to kind of explore the issue, whether it be about queerness or about uh, our attitudes towards, towards queerness or our politics, or uh, again, if we're going to have rice or beans for dinner. I th always think about Shaw, and I think it's Major Barbara, mm. where as it turns out, because he just let the characters speak, mm -hmm. the capitalist comes up with a better argument than the socialists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's fascinating about Major Barbara is you have this long-standing... I, I actually really love Major Barbara. But the end, there's something kind of sinister about it. And that's... I think the brilliance of it is that you have this really convincing argument for this warmongering form of capitalism that kind of devours these people's lives and makes them part of a machine. And you see it work on somebody. You see it work on the most ideal, most pure hearted individual. And for me, that's <laughs> just an amazing, amazing trick because it looks, oh, wow, that's that's well reasoned. But actually... That's exactly what capitalism does, frankly. It absorbs everything it touches. It can, you know, put Che Guevara on a frickin' t-shirt, <laughs> uh, put Frito Kahlo on some earrings, and sell them. Make that money no matter what it takes. Right now, of course, we've got COVID-19. As someone working in theater, live theater, mm. is there a fear that you may not have an audience in two months? I'm very interested in fear. There's, I think, there's a legit scientific reason we should be concerned in this moment in time. I am somebody who, and maybe it's my just my coping mechanism in the face of, of terror. Um, I try to, or maybe it's, speaking of terror, maybe it's just the after effects of being in New York on September 11th and being inundated by it. 
I try never to make any decision in my life based on fear. If the reason I'm not going to do something is fear, unless it's like doing something ridiculously crazy that could actually end my life, like jumping into a lake or jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, right? That's I'm having trouble in this moment in time conceptualizing that that we will ever get to that point, that people will be so afraid to convene they would abdicate going to theater. That's just me. There's so many folks who who have much more compromised immune systems than myself or who have a, a history with illness that have very good reason to be exceptionally cautious these days. And then there are those folks who live their lives from a place of fear and who very well might decide that they don't want to take in a show like Don't Eat the Mangoes or 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 Frozen, whatever it may be. So uh, it's 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 again. I hadn't thought of it until this moment. So thank you for adding to <laughs> adding to the burdens of being a playwright already. Well, my thought, and this is just me, is that. If it's a epidemic, pandemic, and 50 to 75% people are going to get it, then no matter what you do, you're going to wind up, you have a good shot at getting it, so live your life. Ricardo Perez Gonzalez, Don't Eat the Mangoes is now opening, and you have these projects in LA. Are there any other plays that are on the horizon in the next few months? Uh, yes, indeed, actually. Not productions, I shouldn't say, but I've been commissioned by Longworth Theatre and Jacob Padron to write the second in the On the Grounds Belonging Trilogy. So the Belonging Trilogy is, I've been working on it here in San Francisco while looking out over the bay. The second play takes place in the 80s when our lovers are dealing with uh, the fallout of the um, AIDS epidemic. And it's going to have a reading at Long Wharf as part of the commission series. And hopefully there was a, a lot of excitement in New Haven about the first play and a request to have it staged very soon. So uh, New Haven, Connecticut, will be seeing more of, of belonging and uh, my work. With plays like The Inheritance or Angels in America or even the Harry Potter play, there are plays that are now long full day plays is it ever in the back of your mind that when the three plays are completed you can kind of push them together and create an epic absolutely absolutely ideally they function on their own but once i complete the three they might not so i might do some rewrites to really make a rather large epic and also if they do manage to function on their own, I've always envisioned a kind of repertory situation where the first play plays on a uh, Tuesday and then the second on a Wednesday and the third on a Thursday. And the older actors in the first play, so it's a pair of young lovers in the first play, and then those young lovers in the third play are older and deciding to end their lives with dignity and, and dealing with their adopted son and, and things like that. And the younger in in the first play the younger lovers are kind of mentored by these older gentlemen and i really would love to see the older gentlemen in the first play play the lovers in the final play so that we use the same actors in each of the plays kind of highlighting the connections between all of these experiences and of course 
If that doesn't work, there's always the miniseries. <laughs> exactly. No, I've been pitching. I'm literally going to LA next week after uh, opening of this show to go pitch an on the grounds of belonging miniseries. Essentially, it's exactly that. You you sound like my boyfriend. He has been pushing me to write that for a year now. Mm-hmm.